0: Welcome to The Committed Innovator, where experienced innovators and unsung heroes share their triumphs and trials with our host, Eric Roth, the global leader of McKinsey's innovation and growth practice. We'll uncover the real stories behind successful innovations and take you behind the scenes with the leaders developing innovative new technologies and business models to unlock long-term growth.
1: Today, we have Neil Gutterson, who is the retired CTO of Corteva. Corteva, for those of you who are not aware, is the only integrated agricultural chemical company in the world, so responsible for many of the things that we find on our our tables each day, and Neil, as you'll find, has a long career as an entrepreneur, as a a senior executive in in large companies, and is uh, going to share many of his insights from from all of those journeys, having been there and done it in terms of driving innovation and growth. So Neil, it is absolutely a pleasure to welcome you today. Really appreciate your time and looking forward to the conversation.
0: Eric, thank you very much. And thanks for the invitation to spend time. You've had some great people in this uh, podcast series before, and um, I'm honored to be here and look forward to the conversation.
1: So, Neil, um, not everyone may know Corteva and not everyone may know you. So, why don't we just start out with a little bit of background?
0: We're the only public company today that is dedicated to agriculture. We think of ourselves as a pure play ag company. So, Corteva, the great thing is we wake up every day thinking only about ag, only about farmers, only about the consumers they serve as well. And, you know, what we sell are seed products, uh, we sell crop protection products for farmers. We basically think about How do we make a farmer's life better, um, more profitable, more successful? Make them more sustainable, and then digital tools. It's really the newest part of what we do. Tell us the journey that's gotten you to uh, to where you are today. Sure thing. You know, so you know, first of all, I am a scientist by training. You know, I got out of grad school in the early '80s when biotech was really just starting in ag, and so I gravitated to that and joined one of the early startups. So. Most of my career until six and a half years ago, all my career was in small companies, very entrepreneurial companies, pretty much tech-oriented, but trying to make a difference in ag. I was a CEO at one of those companies from 2007 to 2014, Mendel Biotechnology. Then I came to one of the legacy companies of Corteva, Pioneer, the hybrid, the seed company, then had the honor and the uh, challenge of helping create Corteva from three different organizations three different R and D organizations. So it's been fun to have both that small company experience and the large company experience to think about attacking big companies and companies, and then how to defend and be an attacker within a company.
1: You've been in small companies, attackers, as you say, and, and innovative tech startups. What's the major difference between sort of leading a small organization and then being in a big organization that's trying to be innovative, like a small organization.
0: Well, some of it's probably sort of obvious, but I think in size and ease of communication and what do we talk about? Units of a hundred people are sort of the ideal size to work as a group and get much above that. It gets tough. But I think one of the interesting things, of course, about a small company is whatever stage you're in, you wear a lot of hats. You're very close to you know, fundamental strategic choices. And I think another key issue is the nature of risk. When you're a large incumbent, you have so much to protect that the risk appetite is very different from what it is as a startup. And a startup, it's not a lot of downside risk. You're not spending a lot of time worrying about protecting what you have. You're worrying about how to create something. And that that really does create a a really different mindset, a different appetite. It's very different to attack something when you don't have a lot at risk to start with.
1: Well, and you said something um, also quite interesting in in that context where you wear many hats. Smaller companies may just dynamically reallocate resources because they have to by necessity. And large companies struggle to do that, as you just alluded to, because they like to keep the resources on things that protect the core. Would you say that that is perhaps one of the biggest differences and struggles that you've seen relative to a small company versus a large one is how you get the best people to the right places?
0: yeah and how you get
1: the right capital
0: to the right places both right i mean it's it is both things you know even small companies you hire the first ceo of a small company and the reality is or you don't hire maybe they're the founder right and that ceo probably isn't the right ceo in four years and i think everyone around the board table knows that at the start so in a way a small company is always thinking about the pivot the change that has to come which is very much the opposite of a large company where efficiency is the goal we're getting better and better at what you do is the goal. No question that getting the right people in, in some ways is maybe even easier. It's always hard to move a founder out, I'm sure, right? We Many of us have lived that. And I was not the CEO to start with of the company, right? I came in as a head of research after four years and then the CEO after 10 years of the company starting. One of the things that I certainly tried to do is, at Corteva, is bring some of that ways of, of moving money and thinking differently about projects and, and change into part of our portfolio and getting basically part of our portfolio to be essentially the equivalent to a venture capital firm's portfolio of small companies where you would think about each of those initiatives as a separate small company with a science leader and a business leader, and then being very adaptive. I think that's part of the the, the challenge. Any big company, right? You're focusing on stages and gates, delivery. You think you know what the market wants. I think small companies inherently are trying to figure out what the market wants. And so much more interested and open to adapting, changing, pivoting, learning
1: uh, that cycle. So before we get into more specifics on Corteva, it might be uh, interesting to step back a little bit and help our listeners understand the context for agriculture today. It is going through arguably tremendous change. Well, this could be its own podcast, obviously, Eric, as
0: you well know. But if we step back and think about food first. We all eat, so we all have a vested interest in the food system. Our food system, I really do believe fundamentally, is the safest it's ever been. It's very affordable, even in a complete global context, let alone a sort of more developed world context. But interestingly enough, the risk appetite of the average consumer is not what it was maybe a hundred years ago when you had to worry much more about where your food came from. So people have incredibly high expectations of how their food is produced, the quality of the food, and natural seems to be really appealing to people, Um, organic production. uh, uh, People care a lot about the ag system and how sustainable it is. And in some ways conventional agriculture as i know it large agriculture large farms around the world that whole system is under attack from ngos it's being worried about by consumers uh, is my food being produced in a sustainable way are the farmers who produce that food being treated well what chemicals are being used and what tools and technologies are being used so that's a lot of what's on the mind that's the sort of broader sort of societal context, you might say, Eric, and I think it's really global. It's not just a developed world kind of issue. People tend to think about agriculture and think, wow, you got these big, massive farms. People tend to think about agriculture and think, wow, you've got these big farms that have thousands and thousands of animals on them if they're producing uh, beef and that sort of thing. And it feels sort of sometimes wrong to people, right? Small seems appealing. But interesting enough, there are still mostly family farms, even in the U.S. So there is this sort of tension between what you need to do in agriculture to serve a growing and global population and the myths that sometimes people have about how food should be produced. One of the issues is that, like everyone else, farmers are being served in different ways through digital tools, and their expectation of how they're going to be served by companies like us is evolving, helping absorb the complexity that a farmer has in the decisions they make digital is enabling that. So I think fundamentally, the demands of the market are changing. Expectations from an environmental standpoint, climate change are, are changing. And and fortunately, it, we're in a period of great technological change as well. So uh, that's why I think, you know, really, maybe disruption is on the offing in various ways, but certainly rapid change and new ways to serve customers is, is part of that journey.
1: Well, and as you know, what's core to disruption is really business model change, right? The economic models usually enabled by a technological advancement provide for different kinds of entrants to monetize a given market in new ways. Where where are you seeing that the most today in agriculture?
0: Yeah, well, business model, absolutely, right? I mean, as a someone who leads an R&D organization, the, the engagement with commercial, with the portfolio part of our organization on business model thinking is is really critical, and it's not the easiest thing for us, right? We like to think of ourselves as the trusted partner for farmers. And so I think the way we give that information, the way we give those insights, the way we can help farmers actually make better choices about their farms that's really the direction we're going in, sort of more integrated business model like allows for more solution thinking. One example of this evolution of business models, I would say we're piloting in a, a segment of our business that's really addressing a market in pasture and land management that serves you know, rearing cattle, for example, for beef, where most of the market is underserved, is not served at all with weed control that actually we know if you control weeds on your pasture, you can actually have a higher return on the, the beef or the dairy you're generating as a, as a rancher, if you've got a 10,000 acre you know pasture, you can't go out and figure out where your problems are in your field. But using satellite imaging today, we can now analyze for a, a land manager where there's weeds on the field, when that when it's right time to treat those weeds with weed control solutions, and so rather than just trying to sell a a, a rancher on here's some herbicide to treat, you know, parts of your field, we're actually going out and offering a service. We call it LandVisor. It's an advisory tool, right? It's a decision support tool for farmers, but it's, to your point earlier, it's a business model change based on new technology, new new artificial intelligence tools to translate images of a farm into understanding of where there are weeds and how you can improve the value of that, that pasture.
1: So this is a pretty phenomenal shift for an R&D centric organization to adopt effectively a data digital centric solution. How do you start to think about this transition? You're a scientist at heart. So how do you take a science driven organization and get it to start looking at the market back to come up with these more disruptive solutions? That, That can't be easy, at least not in my experience.
0: No, it's not necessarily an easy journey. And even more than being science-driven, Eric, I think part of what the challenge is, we're a very product-driven company because we have one or two fundamental business models over a long horizon. I mean, Pioneer, the seed company I came to, the legacy organization, will have its 95th birthday next year. The initial business model was about farmers selling to other farmers. Who's best to tell a farmer what works well It's a farmer? What's our business model today primarily for the Pioneer brand within Corteva? it's having farmer sales reps tell farmers the best way to farm. So that model lasted 95 years in North America. So so business model change is not fundamental to what we think, right? There are companies who change their business model every two or three or four or five years, right? Um, That's not something we do well. And mostly, whether it's crop protection, the next generation product, or seed, the next generation product, it is a product-focused thinking. So that change from product focus to more solution, service, that's not easy. And it has to happen not just in R&D, even if R&D has an idea of how to do that, you know, we've got to work with commercial to see it. But also, to your earlier point, I think commercial is seeing the need for that, right? I mean, we are going through a time of commoditization. You know, the difference in genetic performance on a farmer's field is not that big anymore. You know, we're getting to really refine performance. And so
1: in many ways, services are what will differentiate us. So how do you get the commercial side of the business that might identify the need to talk to the technical side of the business that might think they have a solution or a technology at least and marry those two together in a way that it, something comes out the other side that actually works and is valuable? One of the things we did as we came together as
0: Corteva from our three legacy organizations, is we stepped back and spent time working on our R and D strategy, based on the emerging business strategy for Corteva, and we did that with the portfolio teams and with people at a commercial, and 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 had some of this dialogue very directly. You know, when you're forming strategy at some level, part of it's very concrete and part of it's sort of long term thinking, but we we definitely engaged with the, the the teams that were doing customer reviews and product reviews to understand are the persona of the, of the customer. So part of that journey in the R and D strategy was to really get the R and D organization to understand that they needed a farmer mindset, not a product mindset, or at least in addition to,
1: right. And, and, and was that the first time for some of the R and D professionals that they actually really had, you know, firsthand insights into the farmer? I think so,
0: or, or or being pushed in quite that that level, because you know some of our some people in an R and D organization work pretty much in the field. They're maybe showing farmers product performance, but there's others who work in a lab and you know may never have been on a farm. Period, right? And so um, getting them to really think through the lens of a farmer, right? What is what does a farmer need? How does a farmer think? What are their real challenges? It's not such an easy journey. So we do meet periodically now with the commercial customer focus group, thinking about the persona of the farmer. We've encouraged all of our teams to spend time being fanatically focused on the farmer. We, you know, don't think of just about a product.
1: Um, think about the business we're in as improving the lives of a farmer. I think it's fascinating that you know, people who may have dedicated their lives to improving farms and farmers' li- uh, livelihoods and had never been on a farm. I mean, th- does everyone have to go to a farm now? Is that a requirement? Well, you
0: know, it's interesting. I was talking to um, my boss the other day about the the changes we've experienced in the past year, right? You know, we've started to, to engage with different ways with farmers, right? And you know, it's nice for in the past to take a couple of scientists along with a commercial guy to a farmer's field, but now, why not have a hundred R and D folks? You know participating through a video you know channel with a farmer walking through their field, having a dialogue and exposing them in a, in a way that never would have been thought of before, certainly wouldn't have been done before, and can really bring the farmer's life experience to life. And my boss was talking about a dialogue he had with one of his friends, who's a farmer, and they were taking a an iPad and showing him out the front of the cab of the of the of the
1: uh, the harvester during harvest season, right? That's really powerful. Well, well, why don't we spend a minute on that? I mean, you know, we can't we can't ignore the reality that's around us now the, the the global pandemic and and the humanitarian and economic crisis that that's really created. How has Corteva changed or shifted in order to accommodate the the current reality? I mean, I'm sure there's some things that you've you've lost, uh, and as you just described, there's some new things that you've probably gained through through this new context we all have to work within.
0: Yep. Yeah. Well, some of them are the same things I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast, you know, will relate to, right? Uh, um, the way you can more easily connect in an international context with people, right? Uh, but the, more, the bigger challenge of connecting in the ways you're used to with people who are local to you. Um, and so we've had to find new ways to do that. But I think maybe more interestingly for ag, there are certain trends that have been um, underway already, partly within research and partly with research serving with commercial our customers. Um, and those, those have accelerated. So, you know, one example is just a whole virtual engagement. We had what we call the Strategy Jam, and it was a virtu- virtual global interaction with, of R&D. And at that time, we knew something about COVID, but it certainly hadn't been part of our planning thought. We were doing this because we wanted to engage the global organization and thinking about strategy. But it sure as hell helped us when, we, when three, four months later, we had to really work virtually. And then we had our next... Global Science Symposium, which usually has five hundred people live, we had two thousand people engaged in that, in that conversation about the science and the strategy, and that was you know sort of just accelerating a change that was happening internally. We also use sensors and proximal sensors, maybe little robots running through a field and measuring things, and satellites measuring things, and and water sensors and nitrogen sensors plugged into the field, and all of that gave us gives us the ability to get information remotely. So now, rather than sending you know, 20 people into the field to look at a, a, a farm and look at our product performance,
1: we do it virtually. The reality of COVID obviously challenging, but it sounds like this, the silver lining might be that it actually it helped you accelerate some of the changes that you were trying to make in terms of bringing Corteva up to become a more innovative and agile company. Yeah, and, and become a little bit, maybe a little more open to change
0: a little open to the fact that disruption is real. One might've thought three years ago that, well, our business model is pretty robust and we can sort of ride that model for a while. But when you really live a disruption like this, I think it does change your mindset about an
1: openness to the fact that disruption is really all around us. And that's powerful. Well, well, let's talk about, let's talk about the change. So, so what have you done specifically to help change the organization and really permeate that uh, throughout all of the, the people that need to you know, do things differently. Well, let, let's go back to that strategy conversation
0: because for one thing, we needed to, to unify the R&D organization from disparate places that they, they came from legacy companies. We need to do that through a common aspiration, a common mission. And so we launched our strategy uh, about a year and a half ago but we really invested over the next 18 months in various tools to communicate that that strategy but also to generate ownership of the strategy. You know, communicating is one thing, but giving people the opportunity to sort of soak themselves in a new way of thinking has been really important. And and I've been I have to say it's it's really taken off because I go to to sessions now and people are now sharing the strategy and then how that strategy is translated to another level strategy at the next level of the organization, the same tools of how to present that strategy. Everyone's got their own aspiration, their own way of thinking about measuring it. So um, not only did we you know, conceive of that as an important tool to drive change in R&D, but it's taken off. It's really become its own thing now. And then of course it isn't just within R&D, right? I mean, the strategy of R&D is meant to enable the strategy of the business, And so we've shared that R&D strategy with everyone from the legal team to our government affairs team, the commercial organization, made sure that the alignment and why we're doing things a little differently, maybe, than we used to, was understood. I'll tell you one of the interesting things, actually, when we did the company strategy around the table of the various leaders, 10 years was the most we can conceive of thinking ahead of time. But in in R&D, in this industry, 10 years is less than a development cycle for some products. And so for R&D, we were looking at a 15 plus year view. And so connecting those views and and timing
1: between commercial and R&D was part of the permeation of this change. So it sounds like it all started, though, with a clear aspiration, right? So where you wanted to be a North Star in the future and then translating that down to the different parts of the organization and putting metrics aside them so that everyone knew what was expected of them and they were held accountable for the delivery of that. Is that, is that, that sounds like the, the journey you went on. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And it did start with the aspiration, right? And, and you know, we, we talked earlier about products versus solutions and services. The aspiration says nothing about being the best at developing products, right? It's about the best at creating value for farmers and, and, and delivering consumer benefits in planet-friendly ways. So the aspiration was at a, a higher level. Of course, you know, products are important to help deliver that. But it helped frame what the f- more basic purpose we had is. And everyone then points back to that, right? How do, how do I connect to that? How does how does my little piece of R&D serve that purpose um, today or in the
1: and future? And then that probably appears in your portfolio, right? The way you choose different initiatives to invest in was, I suspect, reshaped by that aspiration and, and then... Uh, Maybe you can talk a little bit about how easy or hard that was to then go back and say, okay, well, you know what? Some of these projects we're doing may not be as relevant as they were. I can imagine those discussions were were quite uh, intense. They're they're a bit
0: stressful. You know, everyone looks at at change and sometimes with with excitement, but sometimes with fear because, you know, we all look at change ultimately and think, what does it mean to me? Are my skills going to be relevant in two years or five years? But one of the things that that we built which maybe I'm proudest of at Corteva was a portfolio structure with portfolios that serve the core and they're the predominant ones we have but then a portfolio that's really about uh, about change about new business models about disruption we try to structure that disruptive portfolio about disruptive business innovation with strategic pillars that we've agreed to across the entire organization and to your point, one of those pillars we put in place as a new pillar following the strategy work, and that was a product about integrated products and solutions and services. We didn't have such a pillar before. We hadn't kind of come to alignment on how important that might be, but now it exists. We've put people in place, and I think one of the keys was to have both a business leader and an R&D leader for any of these you know, dis- disruptive pillars. That, that was important. And then the capability side, we also spend time thinking about, you know, wh- what are the capabilities that we need to have and commit ourselves to at the highest level across the organization? Because I'm sure any CTO sitting around listening to this podcast will know they probably have hundreds of capabilities and, and technologies they deploy. But how many of those are things they just have to be okay at? How many just to be good at? How many do you need to really excel at to deliver your winning aspiration and the, and the business value For us of of the hundreds, we ended up with 11 and that was
1: a very powerful process. Wow. And I can imagine part of that was in how many do you really need to do yourself versus you can get others to do for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And,
0: and yeah, so part of the dialogue we spent then the year after that was assessing our, our capabilities. Where are we on the curve we want to be? Some were more mature than others and some we were more um, superior in compared to the industry than others. But then the question is, how do you approve where you need to improve in particular? You know, in some cases, absolutely, that's about partnering on the outside. It's about working with small companies and bringing in that kind of innovation and maybe even testing ideas out through those companies, not ourselves, period, right?
1: So just to reiterate, you had hundreds of capabilities and an organization of thousands delivering and working on those capabilities, and you came back with 11. How was that received? (laughs) Well, you know how everyone
0: looks like. You know, strategy is all about choices, and choices are great if they're about your choice, right? So everyone gets a little nervous when they don't see exactly what they're working on on that list of 11. So part of it was then, you know, at at the next level of the organization, right, Our subfunctions. They have another set of capabilities that are critical for that subfunction. So people can always, I think, if they think in an open-minded way, Find themselves, but there are choices. There are priorities, and it's not always easy to look at something and say, "Well, we don't need to be great at what I'm good at. We just need to be good at it." Well, that's a little uncomfortable, but I'm a big believer in transparency. and And the truth is, people ultimately usually know these things anyway, and people respect the fact that you call them out and you're honest about it. And then it allows people actually to migrate. Okay, this is where we're going to go. I'm good at this. I want to be good
1: at that. Right that's actually a great positive outcome. Absolutely. So what advice would you give other CTOs that might be listening? Because what the journey you you just actually described is probably quite frightening to many, many organizations. And how do you start this journey? I mean, and and where does it go? And what, what do you need to look out for?
0: Yeah, part of it is, you know, I think a lot about what makes change possible. And when I came to to Pioneer's Legacy Company, I thought a lot about about change. And so part of it was thinking that through from the standpoint of how would the strategy work enable us to change? And, and part of it is building a coalition is so fundamental to driving change. And coming from a small organization to a large one, I think it was one of the hardest things to learn and appreciate, you know, who are the right people, how to bring those right people together, because sometimes you're behind in the thinking of commercial and you got to catch up, but sometimes maybe you're a little ahead and how do you bring the people along? It's not always obvious who those people are. And I can tell you that bringing a new business leader into our disruptive portfolio last year, which seemed like a good idea, proved to be a great idea because of that person's connectivity within other parts of the organization. And that that taught me a lot. Part of it is generating ownership. So you can't have 5,000 people in your organization have input on your strategy. It's gotta be at some level top down. And even if you think you know the answer as a CTO, but you need to get, sufficient numbers of people involved to get diversity of thinking. And so we did it not just within R&D, we did the strategy journey with people in the portfolio teams, with commercial people involved. But then we thought through, okay, how do we develop the ownership and recognize that, you know, the job's not done just because you've got a simple one pager that lines out these key issues. And frankly, as I just finished, just retired, right? my successor is now taking this to the next level, right? Which is not to change the strategy fundamentally, but to look at how do you have to organize yourself best to then deliver that strategy? So the journey goes on for a long time. So one of the things to recognize is it isn't like you're going to spend four months, develop a strategy, launch it, you're done, right? Hopefully the strategy is fairly durable, but there's many elements that take time to deliver and drive through the organization and. One thing I would say is by by crafting that, one of the jobs of R&D is to envision the future ahead of maybe sometimes, not always, uh, but sometimes maybe the commercial organization. And by putting it down on paper, it allows people to react to that. You know, why do you think solutions are so important in R&D? And frankly, can you help us deliver them? And now we're on that journey, the next level journey in some more specific pockets, where that dialogue with commercial, now commercial is saying, so you've
1: envisioned this, but Help us understand how that can actually happen. Sounds like you probably had to challenge some orthodoxies along the way uh, in terms of mental models and other things that people just believe had to be true. Helping people take OPEX and CAPEX uh, in places where it may never have ex- been expected to go before.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's changing minds, right? It's changing people's frame of reference. And part of it, I think, is about thinking at a fairly portfolio level, right? I mean, this tension between short-term delivering for the customer next year with a long cycle product development cycle, this isn't digital, right? I mean, our shortest product development cycles are probably six or seven years, setting aside digital, which is still fairly new for us. Uh, but some of them are 15 years, right? So getting people to think about the portfolio of short-term, long-term, core and disruptive, but also being willing to get senior leaders even to step away from project-level thinking to portfolio-level thinking. And that was, that's a journey, frankly, we're still on. If you can have a disruptive portfolio and it's only got four projects in it, you might as well kill it because for the, the, the risk of any of those succeeding is probably close to zero. But if you build a portfolio with 25 good projects, you got a decent chance, like a venture firm would, of deliver outsized return for the company. It's easy to graduate, ra- gravitate, and say, eh, don't like this project, eh, high, too high risk of that project. But as a portfolio, it's a different opportunity. And I think we all know that if you judge every project in one way, all the really higher risk ones are
1: going to be dumped on the side, right? And that's a bad outcome. So Neil, as an innovation and R&D leader, what would you say are the critical skills or capabilities that one needs to have to do the kinds of changes that you're describing and portfolio and strategy and and people? I think one of the key things is being
0: able to hold two very divergent thoughts and approaches in your brain and in your team at the same time. And so we talked about disruption, we talked about core. This is all about to me being ambidextrous, ambidextrous as a person, ambidextrous as an an R&D organization, as a company. And I think that the really great companies of the future will be successful as ambidextrous innovators, uh, being able to disrupt themselves in the future while serving the core today. And that's not easy. I don't think many companies do that. That's where you know we're vulnerable as big companies to the sort of disruptive change that comes from small companies. But, but I really believe big companies can do that well. You should challenge yourself to be ambidextrous.
1: And would you add to that the ability to be more dynamic in the way that you allocate resources, people, capital, opex, etc.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and particularly when you get to stage three in a mature product life cycle, right, that's on its way to commercialization. You don't want to fail. You don't want it to stop. But when you're at early stages, you want to learn quickly. You want to change and adapt quickly. And frankly, one of the ways we measure the health of the disruptive portfolio is by the speed of change is by the speed of project turnover and capital reallocation. And so setting a target for yourself and maybe be a little aggressive about it, about that speed of change and reallocation and people movement and challenge yourself. But that's absolutely critical. Thanks for listening. You can find a transcript of this conversation at mckinsey.com slash committed innovator. We look forward to having you join us again soon for the next episode of The Committed Innovator.